Hey everyone, Eric here. Did you know that we produce a daily email newsletter on everything going on in the China-Africa space? It covers all angles of the China-Africa story, from debt to diplomacy to tech, media, culture, you name it, we cover it. Plus, with your subscription, you'll also have access to thousands of articles archived on our website, which is a fantastic resource for journalists, students, researchers, analysts, anybody who's looking into this subject. We've intentionally priced the subscription rate to be affordable and accessible. It's just $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everyone else. Just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Try it out free for two weeks. See if you like it. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, it is such a fascinating time right now in China-Africa relations and really in, in the, the Africa economy as a whole right now, because on the one hand, we're at the abyss that Prime Minister uh, Abiy Ahmed of Ethiopia warned back in March when he said that if help does not come immediately to help bring back African economies from the pandemic and the economic crisis that the pandemic has brought about, then they will literally be standing on the abyss. And in many ways and in many countries now, they are looking into that abyss. We're seeing downgrades in a number of countries, including in South Africa, Zambia, Kenya, Ethiopia, of all received credit downgrades. Uh, currencies are being devalued. The price of debt is going up because of those uh, devalued currencies. We're seeing uh, double-digit inflation now in Nigeria, in uh, in South Africa, and also in Zambia. Uh, unemployment rates in South Africa are now north of 30%. And the list goes on of the very worrisome economic statistics that are that are coming about. So in so many ways, this is such a concerning time in the African economy. But Kobus, you wrote in a recent column for us that while times are bad, but not everything is gloomy. Give us the other side of the story. Well, in the first place, Africa is is proving to be quite resilient against COVID nineteen. Obviously, it's you know there, there's a lot of problems and it's a massive crisis. But at the same at the same time, I think we're seeing that the continent, among other reasons, because it's it's developed a lot of of kind of public health protocols already because it was dealing with Ebola and with HIV. Um, we, we're seeing that that African countries are, are uh, some in, in some cases more resilient against COVID nineteen than than richer countries um, in the global north. In the second place, I think I agree with you that that these kind of macroeconomic moment that the macroeconomic moment is looking bad. However, you know we were also seeing on the continent itself uh, like a lot of indications that African African economies are actually being uh, are proving quite resilient. Um, so Bloomberg last week um, reported that Soweto's economy. So this is you know a large for non South Africans. This is a large township city um, outside of Johannesburg. Um, and you know that that its economy has actually really grown quite quite rapidly um, under under COVID, among others, 
because of the lockdown, because the lockdown forced people to um, to set up little businesses, which then um, kept the money within the community rather than spending it in Johannesburg. Um, at the same time, you know, on, on a slightly larger scale, we're also seeing that seven out of the top ten fastest growing economies this year will be African economies, and that apparently the one of the best performing stock exchanges in the world is Nigeria's stock exchange. So there are these kind of very interesting indicators that even among really bad bad conditions, you know, African economies seem to be doing better than than expected. And one other interesting aspect of that, and I'm glad you brought up Nigeria, is because last week some new trade data came out from the Chinese embassy in Abuja about China-Nigeria trade. And it showed that for the first uh, half of the year, China-Nigeria trade is actually up 0.7%. And that's actually being repeated in a number of different countries across the continent, considering the magnitude of the shutdowns that we had both in China and in most African countries earlier this spring, the fact that China-Africa trade is going to hit somewhere around $170 billion this year is quite remarkable, all things being equal. So again, that is another upside of the story. So to help us figure out where we are in this in this moment, I'm just very happy for the first time to have on the show Dr. David Monnier, who is the director of the Center for Africa-China Studies at the University of Johannesburg, and he's also the co-director of the Confucius Institute at the university. Uh, David is also a regular commentator on China-Africa relations and international relations writ large on various South African media outlets, including Daily Maverick, Independent Online. He's regularly on SABC. So he is a very popular commentator and has opinions on, it seems, absolutely everything. So we thought he would be the perfect person to help us navigate our way through these confusing times. A very good morning to you, David. Uh, good morning, um, Eric, and to all listeners. Uh, it's a, really indeed a pleasure uh, speaking to you today for the first time. It really is a pleasure. It's long overdue that you are on the show, and we're, we're so glad to have you. So Kobus and I laid out this complex matrix of good news and bad news that we're seeing. And I think for, for people reading the news, it's kind of hard to figure out where we are. On the one hand, there is a lot of bad news. Uh, you see it in South Africa quite a bit. Your own country is in many ways teetering on the verge of economic collapse, at least as it's been framed in the international and the South African media. At the same time, there are strong trade numbers coming with China. There, there's, a, there's a lot of good news, as, as Kobus kind of pointed out. Investment and foreign investment in Ghana is up by, you know, significantly this year. So there is some good news. Where do you think we are right now? I think we are undergoing a quite a terrible phase in the global economy. Um, for me, I always look at history uh, as the greatest um, uh, teacher. I think we are much more back in 1930s of some sort, um, kind of uh, economic depression, but of a different fashion. Um, here we have uh, the global economy has expanded, as you know, and uh, quite a number of people have been, with all the crises that we face, been uplifted from poverty. Um, uh, the staff in China, with almost 700, 800 um, a million people out of uh, poverty in the past 40 years. And this has been uh, replicated in a number of Asian countries. Uh, even though Africa is the least developed continent on, on, on Earth, still we have uh, witnessed in the last two decades somehow uh, slow progress. Uh, however, the COVID has really uh, thrown almost everyone um, 
uh, really uh, backwards uh, in terms of the economy, uh, and particularly Africa, in the sense that it's so integrated in the global economy and still depends on the developed countries, uh, even though China and Asia uh, it remains our, our biggest uh, our trading nations. Uh, we still depend on tourism, for instance, uh, and we're still really, really um, linked to some of the policies that are planned and executed somewhere, particularly in the developed uh, world. But oh, on the whole, I'm very hopeful that uh, we will really get out of this crisis uh, gradually. Uh, it all depends with what each and every nation on the African continent does in terms of changing the outlook. Um, I'm very hopeful still. Um, however, the damage that caused by uh, COVID-19 is quite massive. We haven't even uh, started counting yet the cost that it has brought on the continent. So, David, if we if we um, hone in a little bit on the China-Africa relationship itself, how how do you how did you you know how maybe what was your what was your impression of how the relationship did um, during COVID? Like, what 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 kind of changes did you see COVID bringing into the relationship? And you know, kind of how do you see that shaping, particularly kind of FOCAC next year? Um, since 2006, so the China's Africa policy and the entire formation of um, the Africa-China uh, Forum, which celebrates its 20th year this year, um, we have seen the growth of uh, the relationship, um, particularly in trade, even though it's more in favor of China. Um, uh, however, um, the COVID is bringing quite a new uh, dynamics and, th and these are brought by planning and others are brought by sheer uh, accident where uh, uh, new forms of economy are coming, uh, the technology, the role of technology. And, and, and therefore, I think there's more promising and, and one sees growth uh, uh, going forward uh, based on um, what I've, I've already mentioned. It's interesting you brought up trade, and uh, we got some great new numbers from the Maritime Silk Road Trade Index, which is a government's uh, index from China that's produced by the Ningbo Shipping Exchange in Zhejiang Province. And they, what's interesting about their trade data is that they break it down by continent. And I just want to read you some of the numbers. This is from January to October of 2020. And it really is interesting because it frames Africa vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. And that gives us an, also an idea of the importance economically to China. So total trade is $3.72 trillion in the first three quarters of 2020. It looks like China is going to be on pace to hit $4 trillion by the end, once again reaffirming China's role as the largest trading nation in the world. The bulk of that trade, almost half of it, comes from Asia, $1.9 trillion, $726 billion with Europe, $508 billion with North America, $256 billion in the January to October with Latin America, $160 billion with New Zealand, Australia, and Oceania, and at the end is $150 billion between China and Africa. Altogether, it's looking like China and Africa, China-Africa trade ties will represent about 4% of China's total global trading portfolio. So a very, very small number. And it's the argument that I've made that, economically speaking, Africa is more or less insignificant to China when you look at it compared to these other regions. 
but Africa's political importance, diplomatic importance, and the it is so enormous to China. And I'm wondering when we think about the forum on China-Africa cooperation summit that's supposed to take place next year in Dakar in Senegal, is there an opportunity for an evolution in this, the 20th year, as you pointed out, of the relationship of FOCAC to move beyond the expectation of how big is the Chinese check going to be to how can African countries better leverage their power that they have in political terms to extract more benefits that are better suited for their constituents. What's your take on that, David? I really like um, the states that you have uh, mentioned, but I think if we really need to think innovatively uh, and looking, uh, our starting point should Beijing. What's Beijing thinking uh, in terms of its grand uh, plan, a global plan, and where does Africa fit in? Yes, uh, currently when we look um, at, at the situation, you're right to say the number appears insignificant, but the Chinese are, do not think like, I mean, the Western world, including Africa, we are much more Western than any other thing, but uh, they're looking in the long term. Uh, they're looking at the continent, uh, the vastness of the continent, um, its potential in terms of uh, fertile land, in terms of agriculture and food security. Um, they're looking at the young population uh, and the rate of, I mean, in terms of its growth, particularly of the economies on Africa, in the medium, long term. Uh, the Chinese uh, really see Africa as much more important than other continents that you have mentioned. So I, I, while I agree with you, in the short term, it uh, numbers appear to be insignificant, but the long planning uh, within the Belt Road Initiative, uh, I think China has a much more longer term planning and thinking. How do you define longer term? What, what are we talking about in terms of years? Is this a decades or is it five to 10 years? What's, what's long and medium term? Uh, for terms. me, uh, medium will be more of a decade, and then we're looking at your um, uh, 20 years uh, in long term, um, looking at the rate of growth of um, Africa's economies, I mean, on the ground. And we also need to factor in the uh, Africa's newly assigned uh, trade uh, agreement. And, and, and the world, really, it is going through this back and forth you have insular kind of looking in your Europe, I mean, Britain leaving EU, um, the madness that has been happening in the United States, and, and, and really um, it appears that, um, that the headache is over. Uh, however, uh, big trading agreements that are taking place in Asia and Africa itself really will... Um, Ten things uh, in a positive way in the long term, in my view. When you look forward, you know, kind of across the the medium and long term, um, where do you see the the real engine of growth being within the China Africa relationship? Like, are you looking at trade? Are you looking at extractives? Like more, you know, Chinese exp exploration of of African consumer markets? You know, kind of wh where do you think the heart of the relationship will be? I think we're going to see new areas of growth, particularly look at the, uh, the blue economy, um, new areas of, of the, the traditional sectors I think will continue your extractive, um, but more importantly, um, the e-commerce um, and, and the role of technology. I think what China has been doing, which a few analysts I mean, have really looked into uh, the dynamism in terms of their technology. 
and the rate of growth of that technology, it's quite uh, fast. And then if you see on the continent, uh, the usage of cell phones and the awareness that uh, Africa can leapfrog in terms of its development um, tragedy, this in itself gives comfort to some of us if we look uh, and when we talk of Africa, we also have to qualify. It's not the entire continent, 54 uh, countries. Uh, we're looking at your Nigeria, your Kenya, your South Africa, uh, Rwanda somehow, uh, Egypt and Algeria. So those countries, I think, will lead and will be much more plugged into uh, Chinese economy in a much more, uh, beyond Chinese economy in any way, in much more Asia and other areas that we have been speaking about. Let's stay on the topic of technology since you brought it up. Back in March, in one of your Daily Maverick columns, you said uh, there's no evidence that China and Huawei pose any threat to Africa. You resoundedly condemned the American criticism and the fear-mongering that the Americans do related to Huawei, dismissing the threats that they, that they present out there. Give us your take on Huawei and Chinese technology in Africa. Sure, um, but it's really hard to just speak of Huawei. Oh, speak Chinese tech more broadly. Uh, indeed, broadly, uh, these uh, high-tech companies. I think if we look what's happening in the United States, in China itself, and all over the world, the world uh, hasn't come to terms uh, with putting uh, rules of engagement for these companies uh, whether it's your uh, Facebook are facing problems in Europe in terms of tax and the like. And, and, and I think my starting point is that we uh, in Africa, like all other uh, places in the world, we do indeed have uh, a, a challenge with big companies, that they are much more powerful than small nations. And therefore, there is a need for a rule-based world uh, order. There's a need to have uh, rules that apply to these companies like all others. Uh, but having said that, when it comes to Huawei specifically, um, we also have to say this huge competition. I can't go deeper into it. You are quite aware of it. In terms of competition of the rise of Huawei in the United States and how under Donald Trump, uh, uh, how United States uh, is really shocked in the manner in which Huawei has really surpassed quite a number of American uh, companies. And, and in dealing with uh, Huawei, there has been these um, allegations made. And, and when it comes to Africa, one really uh, does not defend Huawei, saying that it doesn't have problems in other areas. But when it comes to South Africa specifically and the continent, uh, I haven't come across any evidence that will convince me that indeed Huawei is spying and Huawei is doing all these allegations that are leveled against it. But what about the African Union, the allegations that Le Monde put forward and that were apparently confirmed by the Financial Times that Huawei was in fact bugging and spying on the African Union headquarters a couple of years ago? That was a big story, but uh, the AU itself came um, to uh, refute uh, the very same allegations. And therefore, as I said, there are problems. Um, one does not know uh, the level of, of, of uh, what really happened in that building. Uh, it's, it's, we don't have the evidence. We just had allegation. As much as we have allegations of Facebook and others that American companies that have been uh, doing quite a lot of things that we have problems with. 
So I think my view is not, uh, I, I, I just have issue to select one company out of many that are having a huge problem in terms of how they interact with society, uh, whether it comes to data protection, people's rights in terms of uh, keeping their own data, as well as uh, uh, how they interface with elections, how they change and shape and they influence our youth. Um, uh, their impact on democracy is happening in the United States. There's a whole list of things that we really need to put on the table and discuss alongside Huawei issues. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. You mentioned the United States. Um, it, it seems to me that that you know, d- despite the the Biden win, I you know I don't see necessarily that we'll see a, a really big change in in general U.S. kind of approaches to China, particularly you know a, a, a kind of a across the aisle consensus in the U.S. that that China needs to be that China is in the first place is a problem for the U.S. and then the second place you know can, needs to be contained in some kind of way, and I, I guess or well I'm guessing that you know. That 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 the the big change will be one of style in the sense that I think the Biden administration will be uh, a lot more open to coalition building and will will try and kind of put you know more pressure on traditional allies um, to join it you know in in this this kind of approach to China. How do you see this playing in Africa? And you know kind of you know how do you see a more attractive, more kind of democracy minded kind of American administration? How, how do you see that relationship? With Africa evolving. Excellent question, um, Corpus. I, and I think the crisis that we face here in Africa is that there's so much talk uh, from the West. There's so much talk, and there's no walking the talk. And what do I mean by that? Uh, going back to our previous question uh, with regards to Huawei, the, all these allegations. Uh, that are being made and competition and the rise of Huawei on the African continent. It has offices all over the continent. Uh, What we don't see, uh, the lack of appetite by Western uh, big giants. They look at Africa as um, not attractive enough. And therefore, I think what confuses us as analysts is that there's so much blame on China, rightly or wrongly, but there, it, it is not really followed up by serious investments and serious really looking into how to rival uh, Huawei. And therefore, that's, I think that's what we see. However, uh, looking at Biden's policy, I think he's going to, in relation to China and specifically Africa, I think we're going to see much more shift um, in the U.S., um, instead of going nakedly attacking Huawei uh, in the manner in which Trump has been doing, I think Biden will build coalition, as you rightly put it. But beyond that, I think he's going to build a much more smart policy, Uh, more importantly, um, investing more resources. There's going to be a shift your industrial policy, uh, a term that normally is not used in analysis, in terms of massive investment in technology. 
and somehow a, a bigger role for the U.S. state uh, in, 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 in areas where American uh, private sector is not playing a key role uh, in, in, in dealing with China. Therefore, I think one is really excited on one hand that you're going to have a much more stronger rising China and, and they're really shifting U.S. views and the continent really needs a strong U.S. Uh, um, economically um, as well as China. Both partners uh, are quite critical for Africa's own quest for development. But beyond economics, you you were very clear in, in a, again, I'm going to quote your your columns here, in a, in a column back in September, you said Africa must look east to revive economy post-COVID-19. So considering that you're very enthusiastic about Africa engaging China and whatnot, now with the new Biden administration, what would you t- advise the incoming Biden administration about how to best position themselves in terms of Africa? Economy is one part of it, but the United States has also played a role in public health, uh, particularly in a place like South Africa with PEPFAR. They've played a, a, in democracy promotion, human rights. These are all areas that the Chinese do not actively engage in. And even China's public health initiatives in Africa are very, very small compared to what USAID and traditional donors do. So how can how what would you advise both the Biden administration and maybe even African stakeholders on how to maximize the relationship, uh, you know, to, in order to, to get the best out of the U.S. and the best out of China? The challenge that the Biden administration will have is that it will concentrate much more domestically. And on one hand, uh, really advancing human rights, democracy. But the lessons that we have learned since the end of Cold War is that democracy not backed by economic development, it remains a mirage. Uh, All this liberal international order, it's really uh, falling apart, as I said in the beginning. We're going back to 1930s. And therefore, I think to really support human rights, democracy language, it has to be followed by a building of roads, harbors, and and something that uh, uh, China is doing well. So I think what we need is that to balance uh, what United States in terms of the health of the ballot box, and on the other hand, what I consider is the democracy of the, uh, uh, the belly, uh, we need to eat. Uh, we can't eat uh, at, the, at the ballot box only. Uh, we need to balance these two, and that's what the Biden administration has to really seriously look at in terms of um, investing, not from a very narrow U.S. interest. Of course, nations are driven by their interests, um, pouring in um, U.S. troops, uh, guarding uh, its interests against China, but really looking at genuine uh, in a respectful way, engaging the African um, um, nations in, in, in a substantive way, uh, something that hasn't been happening. So that's one point. At the second point, Biden was a vice president, and we are aware that he opposed the Libyan war. That remains uh, Obama's crisis on the African continent. Really avoiding this uh, notion of regime change. Uh, find a better way of supporting uh, those who are pro-democracy on the African continent without really destroying uh, existing structures of state that we have. The lessons of Libya and um, what is bad happening in Egypt and the like doesn't really leave Africa with a good picture of what we need um, and supporting U.S. Uh, agenda on the African continent. Therefore, I think we need 
to balance. So I think my last point on this is that we have to look at Africa's agents. We are not, as, an, um, as Africans, not really pro-China, nor pro-Washington. Uh, we, we, we have our own plans, the Agenda 2063 that drives um, our development um, agenda. And, and we really need our strategic partners to engage us in, 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 in uplifting uh, our people out of poverty. So you know, keeping on the on the issue of human rights, um, you know, you've you've um, now you know focused on Africa as as you know as a, um, a party kind of acted upon by external actors um, in relation to Libya, for example. But if you if you look at Africa as a as a human rights actor in the international world, um, we've seen in in forums like the UN, African countries, including Muslim majority countries, expressing support for China's positions in Xinjiang. Um, so do you do you see is there a, an African unified idea or sets of thinking about human rights, and how do you foresee that actually being expressed in relation to to outside actors? You know, kind of when it is an African human rights question, but the human rights of other people? I think the African continent is largely informed by uh, not interfering um, in internal affairs. And uh, uh, yeah, there has been an understanding, I think, the change from uh, OAU to AU, um, quite sensitive on a number of areas, given our lesson of, of, of Rwanda genocide and the like. And therefore, I think there's quite a lot of sensitivity of what's happening everywhere, including China. I think where most African countries in the AU in particular uh, differ in terms of the narrative coming from the West um, is the selective nature of a human rights uh, regime where you really look at um, um, Shenzhen, Hong Kong, and Taiwan at the expense of Yemen, at the expense of Saudi Arabia, at the expense of places where uh, West, some Western countries have core interests and really assisting some of the world's uh, greatest uh, dictators, uh, brutal uh, leaders who are killing their people, daylight. And I think that brings a quite of confusion, and one is excited to hear uh, Biden saying uh, he won't support Yemen in terms of uh, supplying them with weapons and the like. I think there is a need to change the lenses in which we analyze this human rights question without being selective and targeting one specific country. It's now December, so we're going to do what we do every year at this time of year. We start looking back on the year that was. And since we have you here, I'd like to ask you a couple questions when we look back at 2020. It was a monumental year, even beyond uh, what happened with COVID-19. And I'd like to take us back to April, uh, when the incidents in Guangzhou and the video started appearing on social media of discrimination, of racism, of the mistreatment of African residents in Guangzhou, people being evicted from their, their homes and their hotels and put out on the streets. Um, what impact, when you look back on this now, seven, eight months later, what impact do you think that had, that incident, in terms of civil society and people-to-people -people ties between uh, African countries and African residents and Chinese in general? I think what Africa and China have, I think it's a better channels of communication. Um, I think what that event did was to really change the narrative 
I think there was a lot of honesty on both parties. Uh, the Nigerian High Commission um, raising issues. Um, and there has been some discussion and acknowledgement by the Chinese government that uh, a number of things did indeed go wrong. Um, and those discussions are really bringing us to your much more mature uh, getting into more issues in terms of uh, moving away from government to government to people to people and opening up a new way of communicating. Because really, the um, Chinese and Africans haven't been communicated to that lower level. It is always high level. I think what that event did is to uh, pose questions. And I think one of it is that, can Africans be racist to Chinese? And can Chinese be uh, racist to Africans, uh, given the fact that we're both global south? from Bandung up to now, these are uncomfortable questions, but they're being asked. I think scholars are starting to really uh, get into it in a much more open way. It will take time. Um, that kind of narrative differs from your narrative we have with Western countries that has always been centered on issues of race um, vividly. And the other part is the rise of technology. Um, as we say about the changes in the US and how we followed the elections in the United States, this year has brought up new things. We are now able to zoom in into areas that we haven't had access to uh, through uh, cell phone videos and the like. So, you know, one of the trends that we saw in 2020 was actually, I think, a trend that started already in 2019, which is indi indications that China is becoming a lot more risk-averse in terms of large-scale lending for African infrastructure. And I think now, you know, 2020 has, has hastened that that trend, um, and COVID has hastened that trend, um, particularly now with, with a bunch of African countries um, falling into debt distress. Um, so it looks like there's a kind of a consensus emerging among analysts that that, that China will probably be lending a lot less to Africa over the next few years, particularly for infrastructure. So how, how, what, how do you see that kind of impacting and how do you think would be a, what would be a better way for Africa to fund its infrastructure? Yes and no, Kobas. Uh, I think we have to look at um, the thinking in Beijing. The Belt and Road, I think, goes beyond all the... Um, crisis we currently face in terms of global economic downturn. Um, and therefore, I think the Chinese will be very selective, yes. Um, however, there are certain key strategic um, infrastructure uh, that are central, that will not stop. I think they will continue. However, there might be changes in terms of the uh, way of funding, uh, in a way, uh, dealing with some of the concern raised uh, in the West and on the African continent. Also bringing in the whole issue of uh, environment uh, protection. Um, and, and, and you hear the narrative in Beijing really changing, try to adjust. Um, I, I think what China does best is to listen to criticism without saying and adjust its move. And that's the, the brilliant part of its uh, Belt and Road. Um, initiative. It, it will go, uh, uh, however, pause where there's a crisis adjust, but nonetheless, uh, not really stopping. 
um, in, in key areas such as Kenya, uh, Ethiopia, Nigeria, what's happening, and, and really focus on, on, on South Africa, given the fact that South Africa has these two oceans, and it's also a bridge to, to Latin America. I think there's going to be uh, more efforts to try to bring uh, South Africa on board on, on, on Belt and Road Initiative. Let's stay with our look back at 2020 and debt sustainability, debt restructuring, debt relief, the DSSI with the G20, all of those played very prominently this year. How do you think the Chinese have done so far in terms of the restructuring talks in places like Angola, Zambia? There's discussions apparently going on in Kenya. Uh, Ethiopia and Djibouti also have high levels of Chinese debt. Private creditors have complained bitterly that the lack of Chinese transparency has made it difficult for them to to restructure debt in places like Zambia. David Malpass at the World Bank and also the IMF have also complained about the lack of Chinese engagement in the DSSI, or at least the way that they expect them to behave within the G20 and the DSSI. So there's been a lot of tension in the debt relief process. From your vantage point, how do you think the Chinese have done uh, overall? I think they've done... um well, as far as the plan that they had, um, and they have been in ro- uh, rolling uh, over the past uh, two decades, uh, the, the issue is an issue of norms and values. We're dealing with two systems. Your Western, uh, backed by the OECD, uh, those norms in terms of how to borrow, and, and China moves from a completely different uh, way of thinking. Um, however, I think the, uh, the African continent and most of these economies are really uh, having challenge. But having said all this, the debt on the African continent does not start and end with China. Um, it's much more bigger. I think our largest debt is, is with Western countries. And therefore, I think the Chinese are more in terms of leaning towards we need a comprehensive, not just looking at China, but looking at the entire debt uh, question uh, on the African continent. And therefore, we're going to uh, reschedule some of it, but we shouldn't be the only ones doing this. Everyone should play the game within G20 and other platforms. I think we're going to see more of that kind of story coming uh, forth. You know, if, if you look forward um, over the next few years, um, h- how do you see China-Africa relations evolving? You know, kind of if, if we, for example, if we're looking towards 2030, um, what what role do you, do you foresee China-Africa relations playing in the larger global, you know, kind of geopolitical context? I think China gives Africa... Uh, the biggest lesson in terms of how best to deal with key issues that Africa is battling with, how to deal with issues of infrastructure development, the whole connectivity issue, which really lags on the African continent, and dealing with the rural development, uh, poverty alleviation. Uh, I think those uh, lessons will be learned by most African countries to a much more um, a, a larger extent. And Africa's own integration, I think it's it's picking pace. Uh, and while Africa will, will remain uh, a larger part in terms of its trade and, uh, and, and political relation with, with, with China, but the thinking will go beyond just China. I think it's a question of... Um, Africa trying to link broadly with Asia um, and ensure that it diversifies its economy, not just Western countries and China, 
but uh, getting to other countries such as your Philippines, um, uh, your uh, former Soviet Union, um, Eastern Europe countries, and, and perhaps using the alternative uh, trading routes that uh, China is uh, building currently uh, through the Belt and Road Initiative. And therefore, I think you're, you're going to see this relationship having tensions in some areas um, in terms of balancing trade and, and, and crisis in other areas where China will be forced to defend most of its um, development on the African continent and, 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 and really serious uh, differences in terms of uh, how it goes about doing it. But on, 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 on the whole, you're going to have your Africa-China Forum really uh, dealing and, and, and solving some of this crisis in, in a much more balanced way. Well, that's a great way for us to end our discussion on a positive, hopeful note. Dr. David Monnier is the director of the Center for Africa-China Studies at the University of Johannesburg and also the co-director of the Confucius Institute, uh, also based in the university. He, he writes a lot, and we publish a lot of what he does on our social media channels. You'll see him in Daily Maverick, Independent Online, SABC, CGTN. You've also written for lots of different places. Uh, David, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It was fascinating to hear your view across all of those issues. Rarely do we get a commentator like you who can speak so competently on on everything as, as, as much as you've done. So that was very exciting. If people want to connect with you and follow what you're reading and writing, what's the best way? Is, you're on Twitter. Yes, um, you can reach me. I'm at, um, um, at David Munyai, um, as well as uh, my email address is uh, David Munyai, uh, Munyai as in M-O-N-Y-A-E at uj.ac.za. I'm also on Facebook. So those are areas that uh, uh, and channels that people can use. Wonderful. We will put links to all of those in the show notes so that you can follow what David is reading and writing and to stay in touch with his, uh, his publications. Once again, thanks, David. We really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Cobus, it's so refreshing to hear a voice like David's that is so, it's just, I don't know what the word is, because we're so used to hearing the skeptics of China-Africa relations, who have strong voices in Washington, in Europe, and to hear David's enthusiasm and optimism for the relationship is not actually something we hear very often, and the way that he is so confident about it, and it's it's really strongly based in fact. Uh, again, there's a lot of different positions on this. You can see and this is the complexity of China-Africa relations. You can see it from lots of different angles. But I, I really enjoyed hearing his confidence and his, his optimism in terms of where this relationship is going, in part because it's not something that we hear that often. Yeah, he also obviously David brings to the table this really broad vision, which is which is fantastic. You know, so so he he looks at so many different aspects of the relationship at once, um, from a very informed position. So it was it's it's really a treat to speak with him. In some ways, it felt like a counter narrative. In some ways, that he was really pushing back against the many of the more kind of again very vocal media narratives and academic scholarly narratives that come out of places like the U.S. that tend to be very skeptical of the Chinese. And he comes at it from a very different point of view. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you share his his kind of vision of how it's going to go with FOCAC next year and also, you know, kind of how the, the China-Africa relationship is going to proceed for the next 10 years or so? Not entirely. I'm not as optimistic as he is, though I do share his idea on a long-term vision that the Chinese are definitely thinking longer-term 
in many ways. So in that sense, I 100% fully agree with him. I'm not sure that African governments, and, and again, I may be wrong here, so I will freely admit that, have evolved their thinking on China as much as I think they need to and the way that the Chinese have evolved their thinking of Africa. This is what I wrote about in today's column for the newsletter, where the power that African governments have in negotiating with China is not going to be on economic terms, it's going to be on political terms. And I would, I'm would i not seeing the coalitions come together among African countries to be able to form a bloc that negotiates tougher terms with, uh, with the Chinese on certain issues. What I fear is going to happen next year at FOCAC is just a repetition of the previous FOCACs that we've seen, which is how much money are we going to get? What is the size of the check? The big announcement that comes out of FOCAC every year, first it was, you know, 10 billion, then 20 billion, then 60 billion, and everybody focuses on those numbers. And I'm not sure that's the healthiest relationship, uh, either for China, which is really not in the mood right now to be spending a whole lot of cash on these kinds of things, as we've talked about, again, in today's newsletter, and one of the trends we're seeing lately is this pullback in lending, this more emphasis on feasibility, path to profitability, return on investment, and not just funding billion-dollar railroads anywhere they can. There probably is going to be a very big pullback on that money, so I would be skeptical if the Chinese are going to come to FOCAC with a lot of money. They may come with trade incentives, tax incentives, and they can get to a big number, but you're really going to have to dissect how they got to that number. It's not just going to be the cash handouts that we've seen in the past. Are African stakeholders, governments, organizations, companies, have they kind of mobilized their new strategies on how to engage this new world and this new China? I'm not entirely sure. I haven't seen evidence of that. But that being said, people on Twitter have openly corrected me when I've expressed those doubts. So I do leave a little bit of room to, to be corrected that that may not, in fact, be the case, that, that Africans are going to, into FOCAC with a different agenda. I hope that they are, because if they're just bringing in the 2018 and the 2015 and the 2012 FOCAC plan, then they're going to be in real trouble. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, I, I think... I agree. I tend to agree with David that that I think certain kind of high profile symbolic infrastructure projects will probably keep being financed by China. Um, not, you know, probably a lot less and probably, uh, you know, a lot less in terms of money and a lot fewer in terms of in terms of projects. But I don't foresee, you know, kind of infrastructure lending disappearing completely, um, among others, because it does play such a strong symbolic role, both in the in the realm of the BRI and in China-Africa relations. So, you know, the if, 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 as you have argued, that the the Chinese, um, you know, relationship with Africa is is like is leaning stronger in the in the political direction than than in say the trade and economic direction, then the you know the optics and the symbolism of of things like big infrastructure will continue to be salient. I think in the relationship, and that that will probably continue. Um, what I wonder is, you know, kind of like he 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 briefly mentioned, um, you know, the 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 idea. And I think this is a very strong narrative that both China and 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 Africa are global South countries, and that South South solidarity is remains really at the heart of the relationship. I think that's going to be 
that that I think that's true. Um, I, I agree with him in that sense. But it's going to be very interesting to see how that narrative evolves over the next ten years, particularly if, as as many as pred- have predicted, you know, by twenty thirty, China might be officially the world's largest economy. Um, you know, so it'll be very interesting to see whether it's possible to maintain any kind of narrative of South South solidarity in you know when when that happens. I don't know where you're getting the confidence that China will keep up those infrastructure investments because if what happened in Latin America in 2019 is any evidence, then it may not be the case. Energy financing in uh, in Latin America from the Chinese dropped off a cliff to literally almost nothing in 2019. And it went from huge to nothing. And so I think that we express that as a hope, but there are a lot of demands on the Chinese budgets right now. There are a lot of geostrategic demands on the Chinese. I think based on what we saw, look at the trade numbers. $1.9 trillion of trade in the first 10, 12, first eight months of the year, nine, nine months of the year, sorry. First nine months of this year is with Asia. They're going to direct a lot of infrastructure building into Southeast Asia and ASEAN. And I'm just not convinced that we're going to see huge amounts of money. Maybe there's going to be some just to keep up appearances, but it's not going to be necessarily very significant. And if Latin America is anything to go by, a non-strategic part of the world for the Chinese, in many ways like Africa, they they sh- they clearly showed that they're willing to pull back very quick and very hard from from infrastructure financing in places like Latin America. So, just I think a word of caution should be introduced into that that discussion. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, you know, I think I think we're, we're roughly kind of saying the same thing in, in, in different language in, in the sense that, um, you, you know, that as you say, like there'll be some con- continued investment to keep up imp- appearances, to not have the narrative of, oh, China's now withdrawing from Africa. Um, you know, like a, a certain a certain amount of infrastructure funding is necessary to keep up those appearances. And I, I would tend to think that that would, that would then take the case of, of in, we, we, you know, kind of when you look at it from, from a, a full perspective, there'll be a, a, a sharp decline. But from, in, in terms of the, the kind of narratives, the, the news, the, pre- the press releases and so on, certain kind of high profile projects will probably go go ahead and i would guess i mean that those would might well take the form of particularly focused on ict um simply because this is a place you know this is one place where where an actor like huawei isn't facing a lot of a lot of um, pushback it's a place where um they could then use widespread network rollout as part of, of a kind of a diplomatic narrative as well and it is something that then would then you know kind of create you know um on the back end opportunities for other Chinese, um, large-scale Chinese actors to, to then also move in. You know, so in that sense, I tend to agree with David that I think something like, like e-commerce um, on the back of Chinese-built ICT networks will then full, fulfill this kind of double whammy of being both, of both making, potentially making money for Chinese companies while using Chinese kind of infrastructure investment as this kind of narrative of, of continued um, development. It's interesting because one of the trends that I've noticed in putting together the newsletter over the past, say, two months in particular, is the number of contracting deals. These are the EPC deals, where China is, or Chinese state-owned enterprises and state-owned contracting companies and construction firms are building out an Africa Development Bank project or a GE project. Uh, They are the contractor. And all of them, without exception, are state-backed. And so maybe one of the things we might see is that the state subsidies go to support the EPC role, 
That is, they're going to play a secondary role as a contractor of choice. And boy, the number of contracts in the past six or seven weeks that the Chinese have closed and won for roads and and hydroelectric dams and you know the the the, the new administrative capital in Cairo, which has been under development for several years now. And we're seeing this all again as an EPC role. So it might not be that China is going to lend the money and build the railroad like they did with the Standard Gauge Railway. But what they might do is let the African Development Bank and others put up the loan. And then the Chinese come in with the most competitive bid for the contracting. And the government is backstopping uh, the Chinese contractors with SinoSure, who normally plays an insurance role in the front-end part of the investment with the loans, may be playing an insurance role in the back-end part as the EPC provider. That might be an evolution of the role. So we still see a lot of Chinese activity in Africa, but the risk level for the Chinese is significantly lower because the loan isn't being extended by a Chinese policy bank. That may be one area. I agree with you also that tech is going to be another Expect in 2020, and we're starting already our preview and review things, I think Alibaba is going to come into Africa in a very big way. We've started to see now AliExpress making inroads into places like Zambia this year. Uh, Alibaba has been late coming into Africa, but because their world is getting much, much smaller in places like the US and Europe, Africa now looks a lot more appealing than it did even just a few years ago. So in the tech space, there might be a whole lot of new energy with the likes of Alibaba and Tencent coming in to develop their markets and also to bring some of the technology that serve them so well in other developing markets like here in Southeast Asia, where Alibaba has the Lazada brand. So they've done logistics in these kind of very dynamic markets that don't have good infrastructure, that don't have good payment systems, and they can bring some of that expertise into Africa as well. So two trends that I think might play out next year. Final thoughts to you, Governor. I think, you know what, one of the big things that's going to that's gonna be really important um, in in making these prediction, predictions, and, and one of the things that we'll, that we'll be focusing on a lot more in future episodes is going to be the how chi- the Chinese government's own economic planning, particularly in relation to its coming, f- its, um, you know, recent five, five new five-year plan is going to impact um, its relationship with Africa like the the, the rise of of, um, of concepts like dual circulation and so on is, is going to be really important to unpack um, and we'll hopefully be doing that in future episodes but you know kind of I think it's really important to keep an eye on those in in making these kind of projections it's an interesting point that you bring up because there's not enough emphasis on following Chinese domestic politics in the African media. So often when it's about China, it's always in a China-Africa context. But in order to understand what the Chinese are doing in Africa, you must first understand what the domestic politics are, which drive their policies elsewhere in places like Africa. So to your point, understanding the five-year plan, concepts like dual circulation, this emphasis on uh, the, you know, self-sustainability in terms of technology. Obviously, that's focused more on the United States and less on Africa. But nonetheless, uh, understanding Chinese domestic politics, I think we're overdue to have a Chinese domestic political analyst to come on and explain some of these things. So that would be one of the shows that we look in. Uh, also, in December, we're going to have uh, more looking back on 2020. We'll end the year with our annual show that Cobus and I have been doing for 10 years now, which is our year in review, year in preview. We'll do that towards the end of the year. Uh, but we have some great guests lined up for you uh, coming up in December. And so we hope that you'll continue to join us. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. If you want to follow all the topics that we talked about today, the best way to do it is to sign up for our daily email newsletter. Uh, try it out free for two weeks. Go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. 
boy, it is a deep dive. And it's the only thing that's out there that's like this. And it's something that we're incredibly proud of. We're really grateful to our reader community around the world who, who gives us all this feedback and has this great discussion going on. And we cover basically every detail of China-Africa relations that goes on every single day. Also, one thing, if you're a scholar or a researcher or an analyst, um, our website is now a treasure trove of, of archived information. So we're publishing about 10 stories a day on the newsletter that can that get loaded onto the website. And so every news story for the past year now is on the website, and it's all searchable. So that comes with your membership as well. So $7 if you're a student or a teacher uh, a month, and then $15 a month for everybody else. So it's a great deal. It's a great resource. We'd love for you to become part of it. Once again, chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. If you have any questions, you can always reach out to Kobus and I. We're very easy to get in touch with. I'm at eric at chinaafricaproject.com, E-R-I-C, and Kobus is at Kobus at chinaafricaproject.com, C-O-B-U-S. So for Kobus Van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thanks so much for listening. See you then. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.